Hello everyone, welcome to the Wednesday webinar. Tonight we are joined by Reverend Father Baiju Thomas, who is an MGL priest and is the director of the Missionaries of God's Love in Canberra. He will be taking a session on how to read the Old Testament as part of the Bible study webinar series. This webinar will be recorded for future use and please have your Bibles and notebooks ready as we are about to begin. If you have any questions, you can send it in through the Q&A box. Thank you, and now I will hand it over to Father Baiju. Thanks, Hansen, and uh, once again, it's good to be here, and welcome everyone uh, to reflect through. In fact, I have sent you my notes earlier, so all that I'm uh, doing is that I'm just uh, expanding from those notes, and uh, so let us... Uh, I'll reflect through this wonderful, uh, in fact, gift of God, the Old Testament, the written word of God in the Old Testament. Uh, and uh, so I don't want to uh, waste any more time. So I just uh, go into the first uh, thing itself. But I thought it's uh, because we are uh, gathered here for a, for a study. It's also time that we think of our world, which is also suffering from this uh, pandemic. Uh, and so let us, uh, a moment of silence, just... Uh, I pray uh, that the Lord will stop this pandemic and all the bad consequences of uh, of that uh, uh, that came along. So, just a uh, moment of silence. Let's pray for our world. Uh, this uh, this session is basically introducing the Old Testament, and uh, so that that term itself, the Old Testament, sometimes causes some confusions and even some uh, emotional upheavals among, uh, among the uh, biblical scholars that uh, sort of uh, uh, diminishing the real meaning of uh, this all uh, the Old Testament. So perhaps it's uh, the more accurate term that we can use Hebrew Bible or First Testament because they were the people of Israel were the first ones to receive the revelation, the self-revealing uh, revelation of God, self-disclosure of God. So they were the first recipients of that gift of God speaking uh, to the human history. So it's to honor them, uh, our brothers and sisters in the First Testament. Uh, so that's uh, perhaps it's better to call or more charitable to call them as Hebrew, Bi uh, Hebrew Bible or First Testament. Uh, in order to understand the whole dynamics of, uh, of the process of uh, uh, the writing down all the materials, that's what we normally, when you, when you do the, scripture uh, we call each and every uh, text as materials so in terms of understanding each material it's good to know the living context of the people okay um so it's uh, uh, better to know the, the 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 because the word of god was uh, addressed uh, to a particular historical situation to a group of people which we call community of faith uh, in a, as they were in a, in a uh, historical setting. So it's good to know the, the uh, cultural and political history of ancient Israel. In fact, I have given you a, a timeline uh, which you can uh, look at as I, as I uh, explain uh, some of the key dates of, uh, for the uh, ancient Israelite uh, timeline. So we start with, when we look at the cultural point of view, you know, the, the monotheistic faith in the history of humanity that start with our father Abraham, uh, that uh, he, he hears the call of a God, uh, God asking him to leave uh, the land and his father's house to the land that the God was going to show. 
So that happened around 1900, the call of Abraham. And around 1900, uh, years before Christ, uh, Abraham was called uh, by God. And uh, so from that moment, like 1900s till uh, 1300s, we know that uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the years are counted in a descending order uh, before Christ. So from 1900 to 1300s, uh, it was called a patriarchal period, which means the period of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And uh, it was around 1300, the great event of Exodus, that uh, under the uh, leadership of Moses, uh, people of Israel who were slaves in the land of Egypt made that uh, miraculous journey uh, through the Red Sea. So that happened around 1300. And from 1300 to 1250, it was the, the time of Exodus that 40 years in the wilderness included. And around 1250, which means uh, 1250 um, uh, before Christ, which we can see in the book of Joshua, the conquest of Canaan, eventually they reached the promised land, the land that was promised by God to their ancestors, that God promised Abraham that he is going to give him and his descendants the land that is uh, with, uh, flowing with milk and honey. And that conquest of Canaan happened uh, around 1250 uh, BC. And from that moment, uh, from uh, 1250 to 12, 1220, it was the period of Judges, which you can see the both books of Judges and how Israel was uh, uh, guided by, uh, by these uh, Judges. And uh, that's how the Federation of Tribes uh, uh, functioned under the uh, leadership of Judges. Uh, that's uh, the judge from Joshua to Samuel. And it was uh, 1020 BC, the establishment of monarchy, which we can read in the first book of Samuel, chapter eight, that uh, the people wanted to have a king because the neighboring nations around them, they all had a monarch and Israelite, uh, they felt that um, uh, they did not have a king, which is sort of a, a matter of shame. So uh, uh, they asked for a king and uh, we see that uh, God gave, uh, them a king initially from the tribe of Benjamin, but later to uh, that was given to uh, King David and his tribe. So it was uh, around uh, uh, 1020 that uh, the establishment of monarchy. And from that moment, the, the 12 tribes of Israel uh, the, uh, in Canaan come under this one united federation and uh, under the kingship of King David and also the kingship of King uh, Solomon. Uh, from 1000 to 922, it was a united kingdom. And politically speaking, that was, uh, they call it as a, a golden time in the history because 12 tribes together, one, na one nation and one king. And uh, this was a time of uh, prosperity and security that uh, King David made strong uh, uh, walls around the kingdom. And also that uh, Solomon, in, under his uh, leadership, the country flourished by all means. So, uh, and, um, so this was, politically speaking, sort of a, a golden time in the history, but theologically speaking, uh, there's, uh, they, they wouldn't call it as a golden time, uh, which we will look at a bit later. It was around 922 BC, before Christ, uh, the kingdom of, so uh, kingdom of David or kingdom of Solomon was divided, and it became two king uh, kingdoms. One was Israel up in north, with the 10 tribes together, um, because uh, though uh, this was a time of prosperity towards the end of King Solomon's reign, 
both politically and theologically uh, he he was the one of the wisest king on earth but then he proved that uh, he's falling away from uh, his uh, commitment and covenant to one true god and therefore along with him the the kingdom collapsed theological point of view that he allowed a lot of uh, uh, different other religions uh, uh, practices religious practices to be held in his kingdom uh, inspired by his own uh, wives who were foreigners and uh, so for a Jew to the corrupt uh, the the promised land the land of god was uh, was uh, uh, an abomination and therefore solomon should be punished by god and uh, politically speaking because in his time he built a lot of uh, um, buildings including his his own palace and the temple which we see in the second book of kings that uh, the the temple of the lord but uh, for building that he uh, imposed heavy taxes on the normal peasants and uh, so they could not bear with the tax taxation of uh, of solomon therefore they were pleading for for uh, to re uh, to reduce that but solomon was not listening to them and therefore the one who revolted or one who led that revolt against solomon initially uh, fled to northern kingdom but uh, after his death he came back and the kingdom was divided so 10 tribes under his leadership that was jeroboam and uh, under the southern kingdom two tribes under the leadership of rehoboam who was the son of, uh, son of uh, solomon and uh, for israel the the northern kingdom with the 10 tribes uh, their capital was samaria and for judah uh, the jerusalem was the capital and 722 bc the assyrian empire from the uh, northeast of uh, of Israel uh, sort of invaded the Northern Kingdom and the Northern Kingdom ceased to exist. They were wiped out from the political map. So the Northern Kingdom ceased to exist and which we can read first Kings uh, chapter two uh, to two Kings uh, chapter 17. And around uh, this time was the, the eighth century prophets, the first prophets, perhaps uh, Amos and Hosea. In fact, they were really worried about the situation in, in the Northern Kingdom, which was corrupted and which was going away from one true God. And uh, so you can see that uh, quite around that time, these two uh, uh, initial prophets were, uh, were active. And then also around this time, the book of Deuteronomy was compi compiled in the Northern Kingdom, which we will look at a bit later. And then, um, so now there is no Northern Kingdom, 10 tribes were in exile, the Assyrian uh, uh, Empire sort of succumbed them into Assyria and there is no northern kingdom so 10 tribes are lost so what is uh, now people of God is this uh, small kingdom Judah with the two tribes and Jerusalem being the capital and that's where they have the temple but the, they also did not enjoy that peace for a while peace of that long uh, in 597 the Babylonian Empire from uh, the um, southeast sort of raised against uh, Assyria as well as the the rest of the world and they also uh, uh, attacked Jerusalem and in 597 uh, King Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and he took uh, most of the officials and the high-class people from Jerusalem and ex uh, exiled them to Babylon uh, and uh, left the country with a vassal king in you know, what we call is um, a dummy king and it was Sedekiah, the uncle of the Davidic king the, the king in the line of David uh, Hezekiah and um, so Sedekiah was the, uh, the the dummy king for Babylon and uh, so the country was spared 
no much casualties, but uh, 587, unfortunately, uh, King Sadakaya uh, sort of received, um, accepted an invitation of Egyptian king to go for a dinner. So Nebuchadnezzar thought that uh, he is making a pact with uh, Babylon, uh, with uh, Egypt. Therefore, he did not spare any mo moment. He just uh, sieged uh, Jerusalem, destroyed everything, took almost everyone to Babylon. So that was the great Babylonian exile and to destroy the temple, uh, kill the, uh, in fact, uh, took, uh, captured the king. And uh, so Babylonian exile played a crucial role in the formation of the scriptural materials in the first testament or in the Hebrew Bible, because that was the most hopeless and pathetic situation for people of God. They were in darkness because they lost three pillars of their faith, which is the land that God promised to their ancestors, uh, ancestors the temple that that's where God's presence on earth. The temple was the navel of the world. You know that connects. To, it was in the in, in the temple that the heaven touched touched the earth. So the temple was gone. So that was the second pillar of their faith. And of course, Davidic king, the king in the lines of uh, line of David, that God promised that his kingdom will uh, never um, go away. That uh, the, his throne will be established forever. So they uh, lost the, these three uh, pillars connecting uh, them to, to that covenant of God. Or well, they were the, the three icons. And um, uh, so because of uh, that, they thought this is the most hopeless situation. The, the, their world, the Jewish world now comes to an end. Now they're lo no longer people of God. And they were in such a situation and they needed to hear about this, uh, that um, uh, the, the, that identity crisis, the national identity crisis. How can we continue as people of God once we lost all these gifts of God that connected us with God? So these were the times the, the stories needed to be retold. These were the times the ancient stories should be, should be told and to encourage people that still we can continue as people of God, that our ancestors also were in the same situation in the land of Egypt, but God did something miraculous he did something wonderful and he brought them out of the land of slavery. The same God is our God and he's going to do the same. So this is uh, the time the most of the scriptural materials, materials were collected and retold and uh, sometimes uh, redacted. And uh, so the Babylonian exile, the exilic period, played a crucial role in the formation of the First Testament. Again, we see that uh, second um, after that, 539, they were allowed the the king of Persia uh, rose against um, Babylon and he invaded Babylon. In order to weaken the power of Babylonia, he left, left, let all the invaded small nations to be free. And so the Jerusalem, uh, the people of Israel could go back to Jerusalem. And it was the, under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, two high priests, they uh, started to return to Jerusalem. And uh, around 332, Alexander invaded. Jerusalem again, and the, that's the time of Hellenistic period. And we have the books of, uh, of, of um, Daniel and all around that time to address that particular historical situation. And in uh, 175, they again had the Maccabean revolt uh, against um, Hellenists, and uh, so they won. Uh, but that, uh, that peace did not last for a long time. Uh, Pompey, the Roman general, entered Jerusalem again, um, you see. 63 and from then Israel was under under Roman rule and uh, and that culminated in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple. So this is the 
an outline of the, their political history. Now, why did I say this was? Because when the God's word was addressing to the human history, it really addressed to a particular historical setting. His people going through a particular historical event or situation. And uh, so the, the word of God, in fact, first written in the human history before it was written in any scrolls. So that's why I just wanted to outline that political and cultural history of ancient Israel. Now we go to uh, the next uh, uh, thing, uh, that's uh, the geographical situation, context of, of this uh, promised land. So if you can see a look at your map. Um, um, so in fact, I gave you that if in your map, this is a different one. In your map, uh, you can see a crescent marked. That's called the Fertile Crescent that uh, the Mesopotamian area and uh, also the promised land. That fertile crescent is uh, that between two, two uh, rivers, you can see Tigris River, as well as uh, if you read the Mesopotamia there, the Mesopotamia means between two rivers. So you can see that area of Mesopotamia and also uh, the, the, the western side of Syrian desert. And that is the, what we call uh, the, uh, the fertile crescent. And that small promised land. So this is the promised land. And um, um, you see that um, there is a place called Megiddo. If uh, the, uh, you know, the, the northern part is of this particular land is uh, Europe and the southern uh, southwest Egypt and uh, the uh, west uh, east side, two countries, one is Assyrian Empire and also Babylon. And this is a narrow cor corridor in the Fertile Crescent, which we just saw. And Megiddo, like this was sort of a, a crossroad of the international crossroad, that if Europeans wants to go to Asia or um, uh, like Babylon or Assyria, they have to cross this Megiddo. And also the same way, if anyone wants to come from Egypt or Africa to go to uh, China or India, they have to still go around the coastal lane because uh, to cross, the ocean or the desert was uh, a struggle because even in the desert, the, every part of the desert, the camels could not walk. So always, uh, they, uh, this was sort of a crossroad. So the promised land lied at the crossroad of the nations. And uh, so normally, if you if you are on the crossroad, that means uh, you are more likely to be to to run over. And that was the history of it. Uh, that uh, wonderful land that. Uh, because of its, uh, its uh, geographical structure and uh, because of the way, uh, different sea levels and because of the presence of hills, it had all kinds of uh, vegetation in, uh, around that time. That uh, some flora and fauna of uh, Asia is to be found in Israel, in, in, the, in the Promised Land, and also some fauna and flora of Europe there, and also some uh, from Africa, the vegetation and the animals present uh, around that time. Uh, in this promised land, and the, the land was quite fertile. And uh, so, and it was uh, a land that attracted all kinds of troops as they passed by, either it's the troops of trades or battle. And Megiddo had that, uh, um, it witnessed a lot of battles. So all that is that, and there is a, a, a town uh, above Megiddo called Nasrath, and they, like a boy from Nasrath, he could look down to Megiddo, and see that the world go by, you know, the, the, the entire world is passing by. Like you sit in a, on an airport launch and look at different nationalities pass by. So in other words, this particular small piece, the promised land 
was actually in the middle of the world, in an international crossroad. In other words, it had the opening towards the rest of the world. And it was quite fertile that uh, if you want to go for a walk in the sun, just to take a car and go 30 minutes down, you just uh, have that um, uh, wonderful sunny days. And if you want to go for skiing, go to the mountains and uh, you, you could do that. So different kinds of climates and the vegetation made this land as a, a miniature of world. What we call is sort of a, a microclasm or sort of a nucleus of the world that anything and everything in the world could be found here. So it became a small the miniature of world and God gave this land to, to, to the people of God so that from here, because the world had direct contact from all parts of the world and therefore the, the holiness of God through these people and the blessing of God could flow out from here to the rest of the world. So this was very beautiful, very attractive, but lied in a very precarious state that anyone could come at any time and attack it. And that's the history of Israel. And uh, so um, that's the, the landscape. That's the, what we call the geographical context of, of promised land. And uh, so we now just got, uh, uh, get back to the uh, Hebrew Bible. So fourth one, the classification of books in Hebrew Bible. So 4.1, that's Torah. The uh, Torah means law, uh, and uh, we call in English it's called Pentateuch. Pretty much, Penda means five, Tuk means scrolls. So Pentateuch, um, that's the first five books of the Bible, the most important book, the foundational book for the uh, for the Hebrews. And the second one is Nebim, the prophetic literature, the oracles of prophets. And you have major prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Some scholars add Daniel as well. Some don't. And, but these were uh, unanimously uh, considered as the major prophets or the former prophets, not because they were earlier prophets, but because of the theological uh, impact they had, they were considered as the major prophets. And then we have uh, later, later prophets or minor prophets, the rest of the prophetic books, including Lamentation. So the second book for a Jew is a group of books is Nibim. Uh, that's where we get the word Nibi or Nabi. Uh, the Nibi means uh, prophet, uh, so the prophetic literature. The, the next one is um, Ketuvim. If you speak Hindi, you know the word Kitab means book. So Ketuvim means uh, the, the different writings, the collection of different writings, especially uh, Solomon around uh, thousand, uh, uh, around 900 uh, BC, he established a group of scribes uh, along with his palace and the, and the temple to collect different materials of the wisdom sources you know, from all over the world, especially from to write down a lot of things about Israel's history. So a lot of scribes were really active in writing down things. That's why we have Song of Solomon's and also the wisdom of Solomon. And then also his father's uh, poet, poems are Psalms. So the wisdom literature, all the collection of, uh, of, uh, of uh, sayings and the songs and the poetry, so that we uh, come under Kituvim. And we Catholics add one more thing, that is the fourth classification, is the historical literature. That means all the historical, the first and second Joshua, first and second Judges, first and second Kings, and uh, all, uh, all those histochronicles and all those historical uh, events recorded, we uh, put under historical literature. So this, this is the classification of the First Testament, and uh, I gave you a chart, I think that's very clear. 
So the Pentateuch, you have the first five books and then historical books. And uh, you see there is a deuterocanonical book, which means in the, the Jewish canon, which means uh, the, the, the putting together and defining the other scriptures, that process is called canonization of scriptures. And it was in the um, 16th century that uh, we put uh, things together uh, and the Catholic canon, Catholic uh, compiling of all the sacred scriptures and uh, defining them as the sacred scriptures to use for to to uh, use forward and um, so we added some of the uh, books and we felt that they are inspired by god because they had the same message repeatedly in these books and we call them deuterocanonical books and these books may not be found in every bible that uh, every other uh, um, uh, other denominations use but we have that in our bible that makes our bible uh, 23 books so these are the deuterocanonical. Deutero means second, and canonical means the, the process of canonization of books. So deuterocanonical books also you can find. And then we have all the prophets there, 17 of them. Now, uh, the history, as I said, before the word of God was written on scrolls, it was written in the people of, uh, of God's lives because it was uh, they had to address a particular uh, living context of people, as historical, socio-historical situation. So a lived faith of a people and their covenant relationship with their God let, later turned into text. So that's what I wanted to say about the history. The history is God's platform because that's where God really communicate with the humanity that he is a living God, that he is an active agent and also an active participant, a participant in the human history. And so the word of God addressed to a historical in all time in every time and in every place, in a particular historical context and framework. So the history is, in fact, God's uh, platform of his uh, business. So uh, history for a Jew, the history is very sacred. And sometimes uh, two ways that you see the history as, uh, first of uh, the one group of Jews see as election, exodus and empire and exile, which we just saw before in the, in the uh, timeline. So election uh, of a people of God, and then the Exodus, that under the leadership of Moses, and then we had Empire, that the King Saul, uh, King Saul uh, to King Solomon, uh, united one, and then later divided kingdoms. So then later two exiles, uh, the exile for the Northern Kingdom and also the South, Southern Kingdom. So we had two ex, uh, two exiles, and uh, so uh, some people like to look at the history in that way, and some people looks at it a different way: Revelation, uh, uh, cre creation, revelation, and redemption the salvation uh, and redemption in the in jewish faith is the exodus journey now meta narrative so meta narrative is the foundational story so in the hebrew bible it is the exodus event and in the new testament it, it is the death and resurrection of jesus because this is the recurring uh, uh, message of every book because every books book revolves around that foundational story and, uh, and you, you could see that uh, in your note, there is a um, uh, two arrow mark saying, reflecting back and looking uh, towards the future. That's, uh, so normally an author or authors of the scripture, they stand at this meta-narrative and they either look back what happened before. So they sort of do that uh, through an imaginative recollection of God of Exodus. And for example, if you look at, um, uh, the creation story, the land appearing, you know, when God said that the water receded, the, the land appeared, 
and also in the uh, in the um, story of noah again after 40 days the, the water receded and the land appeared because that when the author was writing because he had that uh, that uh, very assurance of that happens because that uh, that was quite concrete in the experience that uh, people saw the land appearing right in front of their eyes uh, at, uh, in the Red Sea, in the Exodus event, in the meta-narrative, that foundational story. And therefore, the, every prophet, this is one of their, uh, the function uh, or the, the one of the uh, important uh, responsibility is to, to, to remind people that the God of Exodus, God of meta-narrative or God of our foundational story, he is still our God. Either you turn back to him, that he can save you, or you go away from him, collapse. So that's sort of, um, uh, that's uh, the one every prophet reminds them uh, of this meta-narrative. For example, if you look at the uh, book of Hosea, you could see uh, he always reminds, you know, is it not I, the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt with my mighty hand, or all these uh, statues that cannot see and speak? So the prophet either correct or remind people about their meta-narrative, and again, uh, the meta-narrative is very well uh, important because it is well grounded in their common historical conscience, consciousness. What do I mean by that is that um, this is not an uh, imaginative story or a story that somebody uh, uh, discovered after meditation. Rather, this is a story that people, as a community of faith, they uh, witnessed together that not one person, not, uh, not a couple of people, but a community of people with their naked eyes saw their God acting in their midst. So this, uh, that's why it's a, it's a foundational story because it's a community experience. And when we come to the New Testament, the same case that it's not one or two persons, but 12 people. They saw somebody died and they saw somebody is risen. And again, as Paul would uh, say that, uh, uh, a lot of people saw he was dead and 500 brothers when they gathered the risen lord comes into their midst so it is a communal experience that is not a thing that somebody uh, it's not a private revelation but it is an experience of a community altogether that met their god in their midst so the meta narrative is very important that any part of the bible you could see that it is uh, get repeated because it's very important this is the foundational story now we uh, look at the authors. Now, who are the authors? Uh, and you could see at one side Moses standing there, and at the other side prophets. Now, when we look at the uh, the authors, you could see this. Uh, so the next slide is. So you have we normally divide the authors as the divine author, seven point one, and that's the Holy Spirit. And so he's the active agent behind the writing of all materials. And then the cooperative authors, the, the one who cooperate with, uh, with the divine author, the human authors. So under human author, you have two kinds of human authors, that is assumed authors and real authors. For example, uh, when we look at um, uh, first five books of the Bible, Pentateuch, the first um, um, five books, the Torah, and to the assumed author is Moses. If you ask who wrote the first five books of Moses, People say Moses, and but that's he's an assumed author that uh, he would have written or managed to get uh, get written the core message of what we call the Holiness Code, the Ten Commandments and the following laws. So he would have his hand on that, but uh, 
the rest of the by uh, the books were written by others uh, which we will look at when we look at the the source theory so they assumed author here is moses but uh, the real authors are quite different around 4 or 5000 authors worked behind this first uh, five books of the bible why moses uh, moses uh, because he is the the measuring point of the teaching authority in israel because you can see that in the, the deuteronomy chapter 34 verse 10 that there was no other prophet like moses in israel because he is the only one who saw god face to face and therefore he is the teaching authority and that's why jesus says because they sit on the thrones of uh, moses you listen to them but never repeat their lives so even jesus had to uh, obey uh, that's why you, each time then they wanted to trick jesus they always brought the law of moses before him and uh, that when we look at the gospel of matthew matthew presents jesus or pictures jesus as the second moses that you can see a lot of parallels uh, between moses and uh, and the real authors as i said uh, it's a collection of authors that uh, um, it could be uh, scribes or priests or those who really um, uh, um, addressing a particular historical situation so Uh, multiple authors around 4 or 5 5000 authors all across and um, and they are the real authors now the next one who is the audience readers or audience so again we have assumed readers for example if you look at the book of deuteronomy the assumed readers uh, the uh, that the readers that we see in the actual setting of the story that is the people in the wilderness that uh, those who are going to cross uh, the jordan river to canaan and that was the final speech of moses so moses was speaking to the people of israel reminding them about the exodus journey and uh, uh, all what went before and then giving them the commandment how to live in the land that god is going to give you forever you have to obey all these commandments so the the assumed readers are the, all those who are in the actual story the israelites in the wilderness uh, um, close to uh, the at the shore of jordan they were awaiting to cross uh, um, jordan to canaan uh, but the uh, the real readers are as i said there were people in exilic community so many years after uh, in in babylon because that they that the actual materials were written for these people those who lost their hope that uh, the lord will do something if they are faithful to the covenant so these materials were written uh, to the exilic community or compiled presented to the exilic community because they were the really real ones to hear the story in their particular historical situation so the assumed reader those those who are in the actual story the or the what the the author says those who are there to listen real readers uh, on the other hand is uh, uh, the the actual material is presented to uh, to a, a community of faith in a particular historical situation and the next one is the uh, documentary hypothesis and when i spoke about the different authors and uh, so um, this is uh, julius wellhausen uh, in fact um, when reading the uh, first five books the pentateuch uh, a priest in the 17th century uh, richard simon he uh, noticed that a lot of uh, inaccuracies over so, sort of uh, that using the name of god um, and also some other things are quite uh, misplaced so he just uh, paid attention to that and he sort of started with the source theory but uh, 
it was in 17th, 17th century so the result was he was uh, uh, excommunicated by the church and most of his books were burned but uh, in 19th century two centuries later uh, julius wellhausen and karl heinrich graf two german scholars they put together this uh, because uh, analyzing the text they found that uh, uh, the um, different phrases and the even the literature come from different uh, different sources that were uh, in different uh, historical settings or historical timings uh, uh, in the ancient israel's history so they put this to, together so uh, four sources that is a j starting for jahweist or yahweistic source that's around 850 uh, bc as i said solomon set a, a group of scholars uh, to collect materials and uh, so part of uh, it's sort of my own imagination as well that part of uh, that group would have uh, uh, did a lot of their oral traditions you know when we look at the the actual writing of the materials before that it has to come through some oral tradition because humanity is essentially a storytelling group that we all like stories you know that human capacity to tell stories and that's why we have all the art for example movies or dramas or any form of art they communicate some story so the stories were very important because that's how the materials handed down in those days because recording was uh, very expensive any anyway and the letters and all those things came to play quite later so uh, but once it uh, the the papyrus kind of uh, recording things were quite prevailing in those near eastern culture solomon took a great initiative to collect most of the oral traditions and put together and also he started this chronology uh, chronicles in other words the day-to-day -day, uh, life of palace and the temple to be written down and uh, so this uh, j source would have been uh, uh, his initiative was partly my imagination partly what i read and uh, so that's uh, around this uh, time and um, this uh, j source uh, presents god as very uh, very anthropomorphic what do i mean by that he's a very earthly god you could see that god doing things like human beings he letting noah in the ark and he closes the door or he fashions human being with mud so he's very earthly kind of god that he he does things like human being so uh, that's the jahweh's source the when you read the scripture if you f come across with such things uh, you can perhaps not always but often enough it's uh, it's from uh, the that source and uh, so then uh, you have uh, the um, uh, e-source e-source is pretty much uh, around the northern kingdom the northern traditions that uh, speaks about god. they use god's name they never use uh, that uh, holy name of god but they always call god elohim or el shaddai and uh, the uh, and for this source god is always remote and uh, he is very uh, transcendent god that he is unapproachably holy god and he's not as anthropomorphic, anthropomorphic and um, um, most of the um, uh, um, uh, um, Exodus journey plus uh, some of the part of the Genesis uh, come from this source. And then we have um, Deuteronomic source, pretty much Deuteronomic sources referring to the book of Deuteronomy started in the Northern Kingdom and uh, because uh, they, they sensed the fall of the northern kingdom and Judah survived because when the Assyrians came to the northern kingdom, they made a pact with, uh, with Assyria and therefore they survived. But 
uh, in the eyes of uh, the, uh, the Deuteronomic historian, he thought that's a bad idea because they should not make any covenant with anyone on earth because they had already an existing covenant with their God. So if you look at, analyze the, the whole book of Deuteronomy, it is set in a, a, a Near Eastern peace treaty uh, literature that uh, in any Near Eastern peace treaty uh, kind of literature, you could see a historical recollection that says the, what went before is reminded and then the conditions and if you don't follow the conditions, this will happen. For example, if an invading king, he puts this uh, treaty in front of them, uh, they would say, if you don't follow these things, this is going to happen. So if you look at the literature of Deuteronomy, that's going to happen. And once the Northern Kingdom was uh, destroyed, they came to the Southern Kingdom. And perhaps we see in the book of Kings, there's a Josiah, one of the kings, reforming uh, the, the Israel's religion. Uh, that he insisting one God, one land, and one people. And that's what we see Josiah's reform. And uh, the, the whole inspiration would have come from this Deuteronomic source, the Deuteronomic book. And then we have the priestly source, the, the materials written uh, through priestly source, uh, and they are quite uh, later to the exilic period and post-exilic period, Esra Nehemiah, for example, they were priests. The priestly traditions you can mark out with the uh, uh, the emphasis on rituals, Sabbath, and um, um, uh, the purity and the life of holiness, all the legal system, you know, that uh, uh, that uh, um, if you do things against this, these are the things. So outlined all those consequential punishments and all those things comes under uh, priestly tradition and they're very systematic. That's why you have the first uh, creation account in the Genesis comes from priestly accounting. So you can see that day one, day two, day three, and in a, a poetical manner they write. And, uh, but uh, uh, the Yahweh's tradition of the second creation account in the Genesis in the, the chapter two, you see that uh, God is, is a bit more of a lucid kind of literature and God acting on earth with his hands and all. So the priestly source are very systematic and they insist on the rituals and uh, uh, on the traditions and the keeping the uh, the um, temple uh, purity and all the rest of it. So, and especially they are big on Sabbath, uh, to keeping the Sabbath days, Sabbath uh, years, as well as the great Jubilee. And uh, yeah, so the next one. And the priestly source, they uh, worked behind the final editing and final compiling of the Pentateuch and to, um, uh, other books as well. So the major themes, uh, we go into the major themes. The first one is covenant. So if you look at the Bible is a book of covenant. So you can see God making a lot of covenants and, uh, but this is the, uh, the covenant uh, for a, a biblical point of view is quite different from contract. You know that there are two par partners in a covenant and in a contract, if one party fails in the contract, that contract is nullified. But in the covenant, even one party is unfaithful, the covenant still stands. So that's why God's covenant, and from God's part, he's always faithful. His human partner, always unfaithful. And, but the covenant still, that's God is a God who is faithful to his covenant. So God's, the, the, the entire book of Bible, especially the first test, testament, is all about the covenant fidelity of God. God's faithfulness to his covenant that he established with his people. And uh, uh, the, so we have these uh, five kind of covenants in the book of, in the first testament, in the Hebrew Bible is a 
first one genesis 9 you have uh, you can see no noah covenant the covenant that god made with noah after the flood that uh, i will not destroy the world with flood again so this and then the as a sign of covenant they, uh, they had the rainbow and in the chapter uh, 12 abrahamic covenant that i am i will make your descendants last many as stars of uh, on heaven and uh, on uh, as many as on the sand on the seashore and that's the abrahamic covenant and uh, and i will be uh, make you father of nations and through you i will bless the world so that's the covenant and it's quite interesting in the abrahamic covenant what god asked abraham was to cut a few animals and line them up each either sides and god asked him to walk between the behaved um, uh, the cut animals and then god also walked between these lined up animal cuts and uh, the the whole point of that is so making the covenant or contracting the covenant saying that if i for, for both god and abraham is making a statement if i am unfaithful to the covenant that uh, we are establishing now let what happened to these animals uh, happen to me and so whoever is unfaithful let that person died like these cut animals but uh, the irony we see though god was always faithful and through his covenant eventually in jesus he is the sacrificial lamb died in our place uh, mosai covenant that's a, a covenant uh, you can see exodus and in that covenant uh, god making that statement i will be your god and you will be my people forever and uh, to again uh, that is the covenant is sealed with blood blood of the sacrificial lamb so that's the mosaic covenant on mount sinai and then the second book of samuel chapter 7 you have the davidic covenant in that covenant god said i will establish the throne of david forever and then after failing all this covenant god says that i will not write any more covenants on stone tablets but uh, i will write in the heart so you can see that also in the book of uh, Ezekiel, that uh, God is going to give a new heart in which his laws are inscribed. And no one ever want to teach somebody the law because it will come from the heart because God already wrote in the heart the, the covenant. So the covenant of heart, uh, that's the five covenants that we can see in the book of uh, the first uh, testament. And the law, uh, you see that uh, God giving 10 commandments. And uh, when you look at the book of Leviticus, a lot of priestly commandments and uh, relating to the moral life and the daily life and also the ritual life and uh, so the covenant the whole point of covenant is to participate in the nature of god that if you belong to the people of god do exactly like what god does god rested on the sabbath seventh day you also rest god honors uh, uh, others you honor others god loves you you love others god look after you when you are slaves do the same to your your slaves in your land. God, look after the feeble when you are widows and orphans. Look after the widows and orphans in your society. So the people, that the society that looks after the weak and the downtrodden, is that, that society by action belong to God. So the law is to love God and love others the way God loved you. So the law is to participate in the nature of God. The next one. And holiness. So the God of the Old Testament is an unapproachably holy God that no one can go. And the whole idea or the dynamics of uh, creating priesthood in the Old Testament, because people cannot approach God, God creates a medium so that through them, God, uh, they could reach uh, God. And uh, eventually that is uh, 
made possible through Christ. So God is unapproachably or dangerously holy in the Old Testament. That's we, in the second book of the first book of Kings. You can see when the Ark of the Covenant was coming uh, to Judea, uh, to to Jerusalem through the Judean uh, hill country, and uh, you see that once they were taking the Ark of the Covenant, it was in a chariot, and uh, one point the chariot sort of went uh, towards one side, and the the Ark of the Covenant slided towards uh, uh, to uh, to the one side of the and there were 12 priests accompanying and one priest to stop the ark of the covenant he touched on the covenant the ark of the covenant and he was electrocuted and died then and there so no one is allowed to come closer to god because he's unapproachably or we can say he's dangerously holy now why god chose a people uh, people for uh, for himself that a holy people on earth for holy god that they have to be like a mirror of god's holiness on earth all in all, this is what uh, I want to summarize, and uh, this is from the dogmatic constitution of uh, dogmatic constitution of, uh, of the um, Second Vatican Council on the uh, Verbum, the Word of God. So this is what the Church says: In composing the sacred books, God chose men, and while employed by Him, they made use of their own powers, abilities, so that with Him acting in them and through them. They are true authors consigned to writing everything and only those things which he wanted. So, and uh, um, the, in other words, the behind the, uh, the compiling or written work of all that is written, God's hand was there. And uh, so this is what, when we deal with the inerrancy of Bible, is Bible all true? It's only myth or truth. So perhaps we can say both. I will explain that. Uh, um, now after this uh, so this is what bible is true as much as it deals with uh, whatever god wanted to communicate so there is no error the message the the faith the the elements of faith and morals written in the bible anything that's to with the human salvation is true in the bible again the biblical authors were not interested in giving scientific data or the historical accurate details that was not their primary concern their primary concern was to give the people of God the message of their covenant with God and their relationship with God and to how they can be saved and be with God forever. And anything deals with that is inherent, that there is no error in those things. But there could be factual mistakes So by because, again, it is God's word written in human fashion. And God's word is unlimited, but the human languages and the expressions are always limited and therefore uh, the historical accuracy could be lacking geographical accuracy could be lacking scientific accuracy could be lacking but that was not the intention of the sacred authors they wanted to communicate the message whatever that is uh, beneficial for human salvation and therefore faith and morals anything that is uh, to do with the faith and morals in the bible there is no error in that and uh, but uh, as i said inaccuracy could be there because god's word translated through human language through human fashion that's the end of it um, i think that's the end of uh, it i don't have any other final comments um, so at this point anyone ha has got any questions i'm happy to answer we have one question yes please so the question is how can we be convicted of the apocrypha when they are not used at all in the New Testament, 
Jesus and the disciples in the letters use verses from the Old Testament, but none from the Old Testament Apocrypha. It is also used, it is also said that Saint Jerome, who translated the Bible into Latin, rejected the Apocrypha as scripture. He said that they were not books of the canon, but rather books of the church. He believed that they could help people, but they were not divinely authoritative. His assessment was ignored. Okay. Um, yes, uh, the apocryphal books, especially what I said about the Deuterocanonical books. Uh, in fact, Jerome lived in an, one of the earliest centuries and uh, the Deuterocanonical books were confirmed by the church. And again, we have to look at here, the, uh, neither the prophets or, uh, or even the, the teachers of the old covenant, they never um, uh, interested in writing down things. For example, if you look at um, Jeremiah, that we attribute all the prophetic oracles of Jeremiah under Jeremiah, but a lot of them, you could not imagine that, for example, when he speaks about his history in that, um, if you ever been to the place of Jeremiah in Jerusalem, uh, from the temple to his place is, if you walk, it takes um, half of a day. So Jeremiah, every day, he used to walk to the temple, taking half of the day, and he used to get back to his house within one hour, because he comes to the temple, declares what God asked him to declare, people get agitated, he has to run back for his life. So he walked and ran to that road from Jerusalem to Anathoth, that's his place. So how could you imagine that he wrote everything? Because uh, you know, in, uh, when did he sit down and wrote all those things? But we attribute to his authorship. So it's the same with the Deuterocanonical books that a lot of things, uh, why church, uh, um, the prophets were not interested in writing down, nor the scribes or the teachers of the law, but they always wanted people to leave the faith first. So the putting uh, these things under Deuterocanonical uh, criteria the church looked back to these books and they, the church found that uh, this had been used from earliest centuries and uh, it, it makes uh, uh, influence in the life and it somehow explains the, 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 the life in Torah and with the prophetic oracles in the later time, after the, especially after the Hellenistic period. And in fact, uh, these uh, books uh, give uh, the, what we call the core message without any corruption. That's why these books, are, are, you know, for example, when you look at the book of um, um, Daniel, uh, you see that uh, the martyrdom was first introduced in the book of, uh, of Daniel, uh, that uh, be faithful even if you have to go to, go to die for your God. And so th those kind of, uh, uh, even the first and second Maccabees, you could see that uh, people dying for their fidelity to God, the God of their covenant. And when church looked at the, uh, this uh, literature and it was used, it was, and uh, that's why in the 16th century, when they, they put the final canon, they put them uh, under the deuterocanonical thing because uh, the church had the capacity to do that because Christ never wrote anything. Only thing he ever wrote was on that sand and which we do not, do not know what it is. But he established the community of faithful first. He established the church first. And therefore, as we just saw, uh, like uh, St. Paul in, the, in my previous session, he's always saying the church has the pillar of truth and therefore the church has the capacity to, to define what is in canon and what is not in canon. Some of the books came in early 
discernment and some came quite late uh, and uh, uh, Jerome was quite in, in an early part of the uh, this millennia, uh, this first millennia so but the the actually putting things in the canon to get its final form was in the 16th century uh, that's the best answer I could do and again uh, the uh, the community of faith comes first before the written documents um, so the church has got the capacity because uh, uh, that's um, as the pillar of truth to do that and I, uh, putting them in the canon I don't see a lot of uh, except the Protestants would uh, suggest that these books were written when God was quite inactive in the history therefore it shouldn't be in the canon that's one of the primary arguments but uh, if God was inactive in any part of the history that part of the history would not survive because history is actually God's story sometimes he's very active in a vehement way or in an evident way and sometimes he is active in a silent way so those books has got the core of message the core of faith and the, that uh, all these elements of holiness and covenant fidelity and relationship with god so that's why church designed that, that they should be in the deuterocanonical criteria thank you Chan. we have another question in your opinion why is it that god is portrayed as someone that punishes if you disobey the law in the old testament but in the new testament the love of god is highlighted and there are no punishments okay in the new testament i mean even the old testament god is absolutely merciful now for example all those prophets who prophesy things that if you do not do these things you will get punished just remember that why god sent prophets in the first place if he wants to punish them, he, he just had to do it because everything was well established and well written and it was informed from generation to generation. But then still God sends the messengers to remind them. So though he is not a punish, like he is not very desirably punishing God, but he is a God who reminds, you know, because uh, for a Jew, if you are standing with God, that is, uh, uh, you, you got everything together. But if you set apart, if you are, going away from God, you are apart from God, you are nothing. For example, if you look at uh, one of the daring images uh, or prophetic images that Jeremiah used, the tunic, uh, pretty much in today's world is the undergarment. And um, uh, the uh, under, um, God asked, to, uh, asked him to wear an undergarment, then later take that undergarment, the tunic, uh, hide it in one of the caves after two or three days, once it is rotten and the uh, insects are all around it, wear it again. So the uh, the prophetic, it's quite daring prophetic image in the book of Jeremiah. But what does it mean? The tunic is the cloth that is standing very close, um, uh, remaining very close to the body, so much attached to the body. So like uh, the Israel is sort of a tunic, very attached to God. And once it is taken away from God, it will rot, it will, uh, uh, it will, get decayed or destroyed same with Hosea prophet Hosea always reminds uh, people that the real enemy is not from outside but very within your social and rich uh, the uh, religious fabric that uh, the real decay lies within uh, within um, uh, within you that uh, so the Old Testament is all about um, though people sometimes interpret it as uh, the God is a, a bloodthirsty God again lot of uh, the things, the, the punitive actions or even the legal system was familiar to their Near Eastern cultures. That's how they understood the worldview. Again, when the God's word was addressed and uh, 
So when they were translating in human fashion, the human words, they looked around their cultures and how this normally happens happening in their culture uh, or around the neighboring cultures. So they thought this is going to happen. So sometimes when the biblical authors portray God, they portray God uh, from their own viewpoint and uh, experience. But again, the prophet oracles, God always merciful God, that's why he sends prophets, because he wants people to, to be well, that he, they shouldn't feel, uh, they shouldn't go through anything that is catastrophic. And uh, before any exodus, God reminds people, come back to me, I can save you. But come back to me means uh, I am holy, therefore you have to be holy. So a lot of, uh, when we look at that now, especially in the light of uh, Jesus' teaching, uh, we can punish ourselves. You know, if you are away from God, we are punishing ourselves because away from God, we have no survival or sustenance. And But once uh, we are with God, uh, and that's so always the, uh, the, the main aim of God is to bring the people back to him and never to destroy. And that's why if you look at Prophet Isaiah, First, first part of uh, Prophet Isaiah finishes 39. And once the Babylonian exile happened, that the temple was destroyed, everything was destroyed. And then the, the prophet of doom tends to be prophet of hope. Comfort, comfort my people Israel. That's how the 40th, the Deutero, the second part of Isaiah start. That comfort, comfort my people that I'm going to redeem you. Then you have all these wonderful uh, oracles of redemption that God, God is going to redeem them that God is going to, God never forget Israel. If I ever forget my son, let my hand wither. All those uh, beautiful poetic and uh, prophetic oracles from Isaiah. So God is merciful in the Old Testament. And, uh, uh, but when we look at the ethnic cleansing and all those dynamics, perhaps that was the experience of the lived community uh, uh, of the time, that uh, they, especially they lived in a time of battles and conquest and uh, uh, cruelty. So they, they thought that uh, certain ways has to be uh, to like, for example, like ethnic cleansing. Then they invaded Canaan. They had to kill all the Canaanites and all those stories. Perhaps uh, from the point of view of the order, because that was quite prevailing in the society. Uh, that's the best answer I could give. But uh, God of the Old Testament is a God of merciful. I think I, I got a book for that, but I forgot the title of it now. Uh, merciful God in the first. Uh, covenant or something just to check in the google and that explains the merciful because the psalms always repeat god's uh, word is always faithful and uh, loving your love never ends and your faithful never dies thank you Pajor chan i think we are just out of time there so oh, sorry. that's all right so if anyone else has questions you can email it to the youth apostolate email email so that's office.y at .org.au and um, yeah thank you Father Baji for the wonderful session you took and before we leave will you be able to give us a blessing? Yes before that if you ever dies before me and go to heaven and if you if you meet Moses and Moses tells you that I wrote everything in the first five books please say a prayer for me okay <laughs> Lord uh, we just uh, ask you to shed your Holy Spirit upon us the light of your spirit so that we will delve into the written word of God to see the beauty and the treasure that you have hidden within the scripture. Enable us to read and also see behind uh, the letters, uh, the spirit of God that creates us, redeems us and unites us with you forever. May all those who participate in this be blessed by our God our Father and his wonderful son Jesus 
and the Holy Spirit who is with us now in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Acha, and thank you for all that have attended. And this uh, work, this session will be uploaded as a podcast on the Spotify page. So please go and follow that if you haven't already. And we hope to see you at the next webinar. Thank you.